Welcome back to Being Extra. So I'm going to keep this short and sweet because this is an extra episode this week. I know I've been uh, posting on Mondays. Well, at least that's my plan. But as you can tell from all previous seasons, I come in with a plan and then I do whatever I want. But on today's episode, I have Brandon Upson. He is the chair of the South Carolina Democratic Party Black Caucus. And he is running for chair of the South Carolina Democratic Party. He tells his story, his background. He talks about his military life, his uh, fraternity, his political engagement, and his plan for the South Carolina Democratic Party. Full disclosure, I am Brandon's campaign manager for his campaign race, and I just thought it'd be fun to bring this out here. So share this with your friends and have fun and uh, enjoy being extra. So welcome back to another episode of Being Extra, and I have a really cool guest on with me today. Um, I have Brandon Upson, and he currently serves as the chair of the South Carolina Democratic Party Black Caucus. Full disclosure, I am his campaign manager, but today we are talking like I have no idea who he is because I want people to get to know him and get to know what's going on in life and he has some stuff to talk about. He has a new adventure he's taking on. And so, yeah, I just want so you to introduce yourself. So who who is Brandon? Who are you? Well, well do I get a cue? Are you going to put like a sound effect over this with the crowd cheering and chanting my name or anything? <laughs> Since we're being I'll, I'll just do my round of applause in the background <laughs> or I'll get the dogs to just like go crazy. Like get them, get Ollie to start barking when like yeah. <laughs> she needs to give in crowds noise. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm Brandon Upson. Um, like you said, I'm the chairman of the South Carolina Democratic Party's Black Caucus. Um, I'm a South Carolina native, a husband and a father, um, and I'm running to be chair of the South Carolina Democratic Party. Um, when you talk about being extra, you can't be more extra than that. Um, deciding to run for office, I think, is one of the most extra things uh, you can do because it just exposes you and your family to so much um, of the world and so much of the state. So uh, I'm excited to have this conversation, Jenny. Awesome. So what is the South Carolina Democratic Party? Like, what what is that? Yeah, so the South Carolina Democratic Party is the entity that represents the South Carolina or the Democratic Party at the state level. So, you know, we have this big thing. Everybody knows that the president runs and he, he or she runs under a certain party banner. And there's hundreds of parties. It's just two that dominate uh, our country, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. And here in South Carolina, um, <clears throat> the South Carolina Democratic Party represents uh, the larger uh, organization. But it's important because... Our voters need to be connected uh, with that entity to represent them and highlight, excuse me, highlight the issues that are important to South Carolina um, and advocate for the people and the Democrats of South Carolina to the national organization. And when you think about um, the party itself, it has two functions. Uh, One function is literally to run and win races, to get Democrats elected. Um, The other function, like I said, 
is to advocate to the national organization on behalf of our local Democrats here in South Carolina. Now, in South Carolina, you don't register as a as party. You just register to vote. Um, so our party is open to any South Carolinian who wants to be a member of our party. Um, and that's the beauty of it. We have no litmus test. We have no purity test. You know, you don't have to um, answer uh, questions or give a secret code to come into our party. Uh, everyone is literally welcome. And I don't know if you can hear, my wife is back here coughing up a, a, a hairball, but, <laughs> <laughs> but she's welcome in the South Carolina Democratic Party too. That's why we're a big tent. <laughs> so like for, like I've run into a lot of people when I try to get them to join, they're like, no, 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 I'm a registered independent. Yeah. Or no, like I, I'm a I, like I think a lot of people don't understand that like we don't register by party. So I think no. that's interesting to like talk about because a lot of states they choose which party to register by. And I saw recently there was news in Florida where they're trying to disband the Democratic Party so that people lose their registration status as the Democratic Party. So here in South Carolina, you can literally be a Republican one year, self-identify as a Republican, and then. You can say, no, I'm a Democrat now, or you can flip the other way or join the Alliance Party or whatever party you want, basically, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the only indicator on how someone identifies is if you look at their voting history in primaries. So in South Carolina, the only um, partisan election on the books are our party primary elections. Those primary elections uh, happen when you have two or more people under the same party banner running for the same exact office. So to narrow the field, uh, so you have one representative from each party uh, that will eventually run against each other in the fall, in November typically, um, you have to go through the primary process. So here in South Carolina, because we don't register and self-identify um, with the party, we determine which primary we vote in. So, you know, you go to vote and they'll ask you, which primary do you want to vote in? Do you want to vote in the Democratic primary or the Republican primary? And you tell them which one and you go and vote. Now, here's the tricky thing in South Carolina, because like me growing up in Aiken, there were many times where I went to go vote in a primary and there was no Democratic primaries. There were, I had know, that same issue here in Dorchester County. I remember in the Clyburn Fellowship in 2016, they pulled our scores in the in the vote builder. So scores determine how likely you are to be a Democrat right. in our in our system. And they pulled mine and I'm just like, I'm a loyal Democrat. And they're like, yeah. well, according to the system, you're not. And I'm like, because I had no primaries, like right. I literally had no primaries to vote in. And even if there were, I was still so new at it. Like I didn't know about many of the primaries, but Dorchester County, we don't have primaries. We barely have Democrats on the ballot. It's crazy. Right, right. So because of that, some of these places in our state, um, you don't know, really know who the Democrats are <laughs> because they haven't had the opportunity 
to vote in many primaries and some have had to choose the lesser of two evils uh, in a Republican primary. They're Democrats, but because the only choice they have is between two Republicans, they voted in that Republican primary. Um, but that's one of the reasons I'm running for chair. You know, um, Jenny, at some point we have to do something different. I've grown up under this system. You know, uh, I'm 37 years old now. And the fact that my entire adult life as a voter, since I, I started voting at the age of 18, you know, voting on ballots that had no Democrats uh, on it, you know, we have to do something different. Voters just de deserve options. And as a party, we deserve to give people uh, options that represent them the most, right? Um, and moving our party forward means we have to take a new direction and not do things the way they've been done before in the past, but figure out how do we fight in every county and challenge every race and start to earn every vote. Like, I don't wanna get on my, my horse here, but um, you know, this is something that's really important. Like Republicans right. are just skating into office with no opposition whatsoever. Right. I know um, my representative, so I live in District 94. So my current representative is Gil Gatch. Fun fact about Gil Gatch, he legit was in a band and they performed in my high school and I bought the CD. <laughs> it's called All Falls Lost. And yeah. I legit love the CD. It is very like emo punk. Him and his yeah. brother were in a band and Gil Gatch actually like continued on with his music career. So that's a fun fact. So like he's he's a friend on my Facebook page and I like to remind him that like, hey, listen to your music again. So that's fun. But even before that, um, we had Conchellis unopposed, Jenny yep. Horn unopposed, Katie Arrington unopposed. Like there wasn't really any competition. And then sometimes when Democrats run in those seats, like they run, they put their name on the ballot, they throw out a door hanger and a mailer, and then that's it. Like I have not been phone banked by a candidate running in a primary or running for an office in probably eight years now. Mm. Wow. That's crazy. <clears throat> we had a we had a slogan on the Lisa Ellis campaign, like always the phone banker, never the phone bankee. Because <laughs> like, but, but like we never got voter contact. Yeah. Uh, and you know, that goes to another issue. You know, we have vote builder. Um but if you, any of your listeners out there have ever volunteered um, and used a call list or a virtual call list, um, you know that, you know, more than half of the numbers are typically wrong in Vote Builder. So maybe they have the wrong number for you, Jenny. They've been trying to call, but they can't find you. Oh, my number's correct. I've double checked. <laughs> so I'm just like mm, presidential candidates y'all we had 25 of them not one of them called me oh, in 2016 wow. just throwing that oh, out there it, it's those or voters 2020 scores. yeah you're, you're not a solid democrat that's why <laughs> or people are like now you're a hundred percent dem so like you're gonna vote so we don't have to contact you so that kind of goes into like us taking those high score democratic voters for granted yeah it, I feel it, like that was 
an impact in 2022. We took those people that were like high score Democrats that are our loyal voters. We're like, ah, they're going to go vote. So we don't need to contact them. Yeah. That's the big issue. You know, as we travel the state, we hear it. I heard it last night in uh, Colleton. I was at the Colleton County Democratic Party's. Um, they had their convention last night. And I was talking to um, some of the, the women there after, after the convention. And they were explaining, you know, how they feel like the redheaded stepchild. Um, they're left out. You know, the party doesn't, um, you know, show them any attention. Um, but then when it's time to vote, that's the only time they hear anything from anyone. It's like, and they, and they feel like they're taking advantage of, like, you right. don't, you don't show up when we need you, you show up when you need us to do something for you. And right. it has, it can't be a one-way street any longer because I think that attitude and that cycle of using people, that's because that's what it feels like. You feel like you're being used uh, also contributed to last year um, historic low in both African-American turnout and turnout overall uh, for our midterm election here in South Carolina. What is a midterm? Yeah, so everybody knows about the presidential election, right? That happens every four years, but also every four years, two years before the presidential election, is the quote unquote midterm election, the halfway point election. And that is when most of our states um, elect their governors and have you know other federal races that may land uh, on that, that time. But those are elections at the halfway point between the next uh, presidential election. And here in South Carolina, this last uh, primary or this last midterm, we voted for governor. So Governor Henry McMaster um, was reelected and we voted for all of our state constitutional offices. And those are the state elected officials that help run and guide the direction of our state from our treasury to our attorney general, to our superintendent of education, you know, all of those big, massive, important elected roles for our state are elected in the midterm elections. And it's so funny to me um, because we have a habit in my community of voting only in the presidential election. But the elections that are closest to us impact us the most. You know, so midterm elections impact South Carolina a heck of a lot more than even the presidential elections is quicker and more intimately impacting um, because when the governor does something, you'll feel that very quickly <laughs> opposed right. to if something happens in the federal government, sometimes it'll take years before you feel the impact. And even more intimately, if your city council or your county council or your school board does something and makes a a determination or votes on something tonight, you just may feel the impact of that tomorrow or Monday morning, <laughs> you know? Um, right. For instance, um, we've had a number of school boards in South Carolina 
that have been flipped um, from, you know, democratic control or from control of people with common sense to the control of people without common sense and a very uh, radical agenda um, that's been outlined by this group called Moms for Liberty. And those school boards uh, have now fired the superintendent of education for those school districts. That vote would happen that night and that action will be, you know, immediate. And the children and the school districts and the community feel the impact of that almost instantaneously. And the fact that we um, are not participating in those elections, we're hurting ourselves, but it's from, I believe, a lack of information about right. how important these races are, which is another very important role for our state Democratic Party to make sure people understand that every election matters, especially these local ones. So you bring up a good point about the constitutional offices, because I just wrote a paper, as I talked about recently on a podcast, um, on the Comptroller General. So our Comptroller General has run unopposed for many, many years and legit just announced that he's job. resigning <laughs> <laughs> so now he gets to get appointed or the new one gets to get appointed by the governor with approval from the senate but mm -hmm. like there was a 3.5 billion dollar accounting error that stemmed over a decade because the um according to the news reports there was an error in the coding that was ignored for over a decade that caused us to have a $3.5 billion accounting error. And he says that, oh, it's not gonna affect the budget, but other people are saying, no, it's gonna affect our credit score, like our state credit yes. score and like loans and opportunities. But yes. the other thing that Kyle, Sam and I just talked about on episode is like, the president doesn't fill your potholes. Mm -hmm. The president doesn't decide your teacher's salary. Like that's not, you could have the best president in place. It doesn't matter who you think was the best. You might think Bush was the best, Clinton, Obama, Trump, uh, you know, Biden, but like they don't fill your potholes. Right. They don't decide your taxes for your for your property taxes. They they don't decide that. And so these local elections, like I printed the 2023 calendar and I shared it with a bunch of county party chairs, and a lot of them didn't realize. We have elections more than just November of each year. <laughs> right. It's all the time. We had elections all this the, week. We do. And last week and the week before that, we had elections starting in the second week of the year. Like even last year, we had an election two days after Christmas. Like, wow. In a what, what, we have to realize is democracy is a very active and present like a uh, phenomenon. And I don't even want to call it a phenomenon. Like it is a reality. This is the system that we live in is active and it's living and it's constant. And there's no days off or years off for democracy. You know, whether we are, participating in democracy in an election or we're participating in democracy on the policy side on how 
um, laws that are crafted and passed that impact our lives, this is literally a 365-day-a-year, 24-7, living, breathing thing. And the more we get people to understand that, the better off our democracy and the stronger our democracy will become. Because as we've seen over, especially over the last, I would say the last 23 years in, in my lifetime has been the most uh, fragile or the most vulnerable stage for American democracy. And I say the last 23 years because I believe the race between George Bush and Al Gore really set a new precedent for our democracy. The fact that you could win the popular vote and lose the national election. The fact that you could distract the folks that are responsible and that are um, are given the authority to manage the democratic process of an election and they be strong armed and distracted away from their responsibilities and someone who actually lost a race turns around and wins the race <laughs> due to that uh, at that attack on the, the democratic process it it showed a chink in our armor and i think over the years the republican party has been taking advantage of that chink and widening in it over and over and over again to the point of a massive insurrection on our United States Capitol. And even now with folks trying to even go to the next level, how do we, they're, they're not asking, how can we get more people involved in democracy? They're saying, okay, the population, the popular vote isn't on our side. So how do we get less people to participate in democracy? And that is a road that we cannot afford to continue down. Otherwise, we're going to start living in uh, a a system where uh, it's called an apartheid system, where a minority group rules over the majority of the population. Right. And then one thing Lisa used to love to say is like democracy is not a spectator sport. Like oh, no. I think that we we as Democrats sometimes treat like the process as like an NFL season <laughs> instead of right. like you know a year long process or a two year long process. Like we have candidates that file the last day of filing in the election year and yeah. You can't run a campaign in seven months and flip a district. It's just not possible. But like if we actually treated it like the NFL, the NFL season may start in September. And you all know I am loyal to my Dallas Cowboys through and through. And yes, my my heart is broken about Zeke. You know what? Oh, no. Did our relationship just change because my Cowboys? It just changed a little bit. I won't hold it against you. <laughs> well, you know, Terrence is is a uh, what are they called now? The Commanders fan. So we yeah. have a house divided. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so that's fun. But like they do preparation the entire year 
They don't just sit around until September and jump on the field and start playing. There's constant practices. Yes, you get some time off because self-care matters. And I always talk about self-care on this podcast. Self-care matters, but they do preparation all the time, practicing all the time. And when something isn't working or a player is not working, they evaluate them, they remove them, they change their head coaches, and they make strategic plans to make the moves to win the Super Bowl. Mm. And that's something I feel like we don't do. Like we see a person in elected, like, let's be real. We have Democrats that are elected that have been serving a long time. Yep. And we just keep electing them. The Republican party does it too. Yep. Incumbents just keep getting elected. I talked to this. I talked about this with Senator Maggie Glover yesterday at the emerge day. And mm-hmm. she even said like primary people, if you feel like people are not doing their job, primary them congressman Clyburn has said it time and time again primary people run for office if you feel like someone is not effective in their job and you feel like you can bring something to the table and you have a passion to run and you have a why do it right and and don't wait for permission you know oh that's uh, a huge one it, it really jenny you and i have been what we've known each other for 10 years, 12 years. Oh yeah. So full disclosure, worked my (laughs) first paid campaign, my only one in like a 10 year period or like eight year period in 2012 with Bobby Rose running for Congress. Shout out Bobby Rose. Um, In 2012, I got hired in September, 2012 to be the Berkeley and Dorchester coordinator for the Bobby Rose campaign with the election being in November. Fun times. <laughs> yes, my first paid campaign. <laughs> Fun times. Hey, you you met the less gentle side of me back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, was, I was a little, I was a little hardcore. I was still transitioning out of my um, Sergeant Upson <laughs> persona. Uh, I was still in the military at that time. I was in the National Guard. So that's cool. Tell us about your military experience. Like what, like, how has that like kind of changed your life? And like, were you in the military before you got involved in politics? Yeah. So, you know, my first, like, like the, the, the political bug bit me when I was 14 years old. Um, Just rare. Well, the bug bit me when I was 14 but like the seed was planted when I was five, actually, when I think about it, I remember this organization came to my school when I was in kindergarten um, because that was the 92 election cycle for president and George Bush and Bill Clinton were running against each other. Uh, And, you know, that race. Um, And they did a mock election at our school, they came and explained to us what an election was, and they let us know that at lunchtime, we would get to vote for president. So I was so excited, and for some reason, I just loved Bill Clinton. I had, to this day, I don't know why, but I was trying to get my other friends in my kindergarten class to vote for Bill Clinton as well. So we went to lunch, we, they had a little booth, you walked in the booth, they closed the curtain behind you, and you, chose your candidate 
So at the end of the day, they announced the winner and Bill Clinton won. And I was so excited. I went home and I was with my great grandmother at the time. And I told my big mom, I was like, big mama, Bill Clinton won. And she was like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? How do you know about Bill Clinton? Um, so that was like the first, you know, my first interaction with, you know, the process. But then fast forward, you know, um, a couple years and we get to the 2000 election between Bill Clinton or um, uh, George Bush Jr. Um, and um, Al Gore. And I was glued to the TV that night as the results were coming in and they called Florida and they uncalled Florida and it went late into the night. And then the next day and then the next day and the next day. And I was like, what's going on? This doesn't seem right. Like, how did this even happen? And, um, you know, I was just interested since then. I was 14 uh, in 2000, in the year 2000. And I was I always had in my mind, okay, I'm going to go to the military. Um, I'm going to become the Sergeant Major of the Army. I'm going to retire. And then I'm going to get into politics. <laughs> that was like in my head. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, when I was 17, um, over my sophomore year of high school, the trade towers came down and I knew I was like, okay, I'm going to protect my country. I'm going to join the Marines. You know, I was, I would, what, I was 16 or 17. And I was like, you know, this is my duty to my country. Um, so when I was 17, I went to the uh, table because they had their tables at our school um, <clears throat> and was asking, what do I need to do to sign up for the Marine Corps? And they were like, well, you got to wait a year because you got to be 18. So I was like, well, crap, I already took my ASVAB. Like I scored, I think, a 99 on my ASVAB, whatever. And I was like, I'm, I can do it. He's like, but you have to wait a year. I was like, okay. So I walked away from him and a National Guard recruiter basically runs me down. And he's like, Brandon, hold on. I saw you talking to them, but I have a solution for you. You can join, <laughs> <laughs> you can join the Army National Guard do two years and then when you graduate from high school because you can do it while you're in high school after you finish your training you know um do a small um <clears throat> do two years or whatever then you can transition to any other branch that you want to it's like for real so what do we need to do it's like well we just need to get your mom's signature and i was like shit <laughs> <laughs> We were good until you said we right. Until yeah, like, wait, I have to get mom's permission. Oh no! <laughs> I know that's not going to happen. So we devised a plan, and my mom worked two jobs at the time. So you know, her first job was at um, a cl country club in Aiken called Woodside. So she was there in the morning to the the late afternoon, and then she would get off there. And we would be home from school uh, by that time. And I was driving uh, at this point. Um, so she would um, come home, have a quick break, change her clothes, and then go to this other um, club called the Green Boundary in Aiken, another country club, exclusive club, whatever. Um, and she would work from there 
to the, you know, say like five to nine. And then she would get home like around 9.30. So I was like, what was his name? I think his name was Sergeant Herzog. I was like, Sergeant Herzog, if you come to my house around 9.35, she'll be too tired to even comprehend what's happening. And I think we can get her to do it. And lo and behold, oh, no. <laughs> he knocked on the door at 935. <laughs> oh, so, that's amazing. So we go through the whole pitch and presentation. And, you know, he tells her, like, because of my scores, I can be, um, you know, in, um, in um, security or intel. You know, I qualified for um chemical engineering or uh, it was an NBC at the time, nuclear biological chemical specialist and she told all that stuff. It was like, he wouldn't have to go to the infantry or be on the front line, you know, so we'll make sure he has an office job. And because of, you know, the type of war we're fighting, he may never even go to, uh, go to war and all this other stuff. So he laid it on thick and made the case and she was like, well, I'm only gonna sign if you guarantee me that he'll do one of these jobs, <laughs> NBC. Cause at the time I was like, yeah, I wanna go to college and become a chemical engineer. So she was, that was in her head. So either NBC right. or Intel, it's like, perfect. We're, we're gonna put him in for those two, see which one comes back. Uh, cause it's all on the needs of the army and we'll get him in, but only those two jobs. And my first choice was NBC and got it. So then, one, two, skip a few. I finished basic training. I come out of my advanced infantry training, which is my job training uh, for NBC. And I come home, because uh, I'm in the National Guard, and my name is number one on the list to deploy to Iraq. Oh, God. <laughs> number one. I'm like, my last name is Upson. I'm on the bottom of every list. How am I on the top of this list? <laughs> you know, right. so I uh, so not only you know uh, I was already getting ready to transition to active duty, but that sped up the process. Um, so I um, tell my mom, and she's you know livid, and the issue with some of these. Um, recruiters is that they live in the same place they recruit so mm -hmm. he saw my mom all the time while i was in iraq and she cussed him out every single time oh she saw him. <laughs> every time even to this day he's still in aiken uh, when i see him he always jokes about how he thought my mom was going to um, punch him in the face a couple of times because oh you know, my, my mom does not play. But anyway, it wasn't until after I deployed, um, I deployed when I was 19, came back, I was 21 years old. Um, my grandmother um, had terminal cancer and my, if anybody knows my story, I was raised literally by my, um, my great grandmother, my grandmother and my mom. To the point where, you know, I was calling, like, my grandmother was the apple of my eye. Like, that was my mother. I, I loved her to death. Um, and she didn't want me to know, you know, her diagnosis while, while I was in Iraq. And it wasn't until, you know, I came home 
that she told me. And she basically was like, I've, I've been hanging on for you. Um, and in that time, you know, I transitioned um, back to the National Guard. And she passed away a couple months later. Um, but then, you know, I pursued my education and um, went to Charleston to go to the Citadel and uh, ended up meeting a young lady while I was in Iraq. And she just so happened to be in the reserves. Um, and she was going to the College of Charleston. And I was chasing her at, to the College of Charleston. So I ended up, you know, <laughs> <laughs> ending my uh, dual enrollment between the Citadel and the College of Charleston and went straight College of Charleston. But while I was in the college, um, I got involved in the student government and then accidentally got involved in the Democratic Party. Um, showed up to a meeting to vote for a friend to become the club chair of the Peninsula Dems. And while I was there, they voted me in as the third vice chair of the club. <laughs> oh like, my gosh. What, what just happened? Uh, how many young people like in our party have that story where like they just right. show up and they're like, oh, you're young. You're the third right. vice chair. <laughs> I had no clue what was going on. But, you know, here I am. What well, that was in 2009 that I got elected as the third vice chair of the Peninsula Dems. Um, or, no, 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 that wasn't 2009. That was like early 2010, actually, because that's when I started um, registering voters uh, in Charleston and then really started my career, um, my first paid gig that fall with Obama's organization. So, so something I haven't heard you talk about much is you're in a fraternity, right? Mm -hmm. So tell me what that fraternity is and what principles you learned from that fraternity and your leadership skills. Yeah. So my fraternity is the oldest Black Greek letter fraternity uh, in the in the country, in the world. Um. Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated uh, was founded in 1906 um, at Cornell University. And, um, you know, Manly D's scholarship and love for all mankind is our motto. Um, you know, it's principles of leadership, of good stewardship, of, um, again, selfless service and honor and duty and responsibility. Like all of those values are ingrained in um, the men that cross into our fraternity. Um, we have a strong, strong legacy of members that include W.E.D. Du Bois, um, uh, Reverend uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Thurgood Marshall, and you know the list goes on and on and on. Uh, especially when you talk about leaders of movements across um, the American experience. Um, many of those leaders were members of Alpha Phi Alpha, even today, to this day. Um, many of the guys um, are either Alpha Phi Alpha or a member of one of the Black Greek later organizations. Um, so it really 
changed my college experience, but it changed my experience as a young Black man um, entering into the world, uh, seeking to be a professional and seeking to um, build something uh, that would eventually be a legacy to pass on to my family, you know? Um, it, on our campus, you know, 1%, less than 1% of the population were African-American men at the College of Charleston while I was there. And the fact that, you know, we still came together um, under the umbrella of, of Alpha Phi Alpha, um, it was a feat, but um, it was one that I wouldn't give up for the world. And I encourage, I know, and here's the thing. We have a, a slogan that says, many are, are chosen, but few are frozen. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, apply to get in, but very few actually do. Um, but I think it contributes to that long legacy um, that we have and uh, the work that's done today. When, when you think about, you know, that transition from student government to working on campaigns and serving um, the community on the political side, it makes sense when you think about the, the stereotypical alpha man, you know, alpha phi alpha member. Um, so that was fun. And, and I had a lot of fun times. It wasn't all work because we partied hard. Let me, <laughs> we absolutely party hard. We had the highest GPA, but also the hottest parties on campus. <laughs> like at nice. one point there was no establishment in Charleston, the city of Charleston that had the capacity to handle the parties that we were throwing. Like we had parties that had a thousand people in it on a regular basis. So it was, it was good times. That's awesome. So whatever happened to the girl you were chasing? Oh, uh -huh. um, yeah, the girl that I was chasing, um, she, that, that chase just got me strong enough for, for the race that I was supposed to run because uh, she ran one direction, I ran the other and uh, bumped right into my wife <laughs> that I have today. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you have a special date coming up, I heard. I do, I do. Our eighth wedding anniversary is coming up next month. And, you know, after I, so I pledged in um, 2011 and then immediately um, I brought in some other brothers into the fraternity. I was the, what we call the Dean. So I'm the one in charge of making sure that um, this this new approved group of guys, um, you know, they pledge and they have all the information they need. So that took a lot of my time. When you're in charge of pledges, you're literally it. You're, it's like you're you have three children or however many. I had three that semester. I had eight the next semester. Um, and my GPA took a hit because of it. So I needed to take, I had space to take some classes um, that would help me boost my GPA and, you know, get it, keep it moving. So I took ballroom dance. <laughs> it was one oh, of the classes awesome. I took. 
And in that ballroom dance class for one of our projects, we had to partner, um, partner up and you had a genre. Uh, I think I had salsa and my partner was Monica Raymond, who is now Monica Upson, my wife. <laughs> so that's how, that's how we met in ballroom dance class. Do y'all still do the salsa? We do. Um, not as often as we like. We've had a family salsa night on the calendar at least five times in the last two months. <laughs> but someone keeps getting sick in our family, so we have to cancel it. But I'm yeah. ready to have this family salsa night. And so you talk about the, your children as well. So so tell me about your babies. Yeah, we have three. Um, Cosette, Sophie, and Patrick. Um, when Monica and I were engaged, we were, even before then, we were talking about what our family would look like. She's the oldest of six. I'm the second oldest of six. And we knew we didn't want six children. But <laughs> we decided, <laughs> decided that we wanted three. Um, and God gave us three in two and a half years. So um, <laughs> we have, you know, because that's Sophie and Patrick and they're six, seven and eight years old. That's awesome. A lot of people think your girls are twins, though. I, Not going to lie. I, yeah, every, they look alike until you get to know them because their, <laughs> their personalities really set them apart from one another. Yeah. So, um how like so you started in the in the political realm with like that third vice chair role but like how else like i know that the question is like what what experience do you have so like what qualifies you for this for this role because as we started out talking you're going to run for chair of the south carolina democratic party so like over these years what experience have you built up and what qualifies you yeah and you know everybody the first thing they do is run the gamut of their political experience right and I can do that like even though I'm 37 years old I'm just one year removed from being able to be the young person elected <laughs> right? right um our third vice chair is like the young person that gets young people into the party um but I have a resume that you know I believe rivals um my uh, my competition in this i've been so fortunate to have such a vast and diverse um experience set of experiences over my lifetime like you know i joined the military when i was 17 years old that took me around the world um that gave me opportunities to meet people who gave me other opportunities to do things i would have never done if i was still that that little black boy from Aiken in Aiken County, South Carolina, you know? So in college, I, when I came back from Iraq and went to college, I wanted to go into the business school because I am, and was, and still am a data nerd. I love data. I love yes, numbers. Data, I, shout out data. <laughs> I love data. You know, I hate history, uh, hate English, but give me some data. Yeah, and I love history too. Like, like I, I, I'm so nosy, and I, I attribute it to this quality trait of mine. I'm so nosy that I want to know 
a little bit of everything. <laughs> and I want to know how it's connected and what it all means. And even in history, there's data connected to the history and there are trends that can be, you know, uh, determined by um, equations. And it's just a cycle of life over time. If you look at it, it all works. Yeah. But I wanted to get into business finance. Um, you know, even going to asset management, but my, my dream was to one day get into a venture capital firm and be able to like, you know, invest in all these uh, companies and help build companies and find those unicorns and do all those great things. Um, but it all changed once I got into politics. Uh, so, but before then, you know, I was in the, um, student finance club uh, at the College of Charleston. I was in the HR club, <laughs> human resources. And they again, had an HR club at a college? Yes. And I was one of the founders of it. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> right. How random. Again, chasing a girl. So, um, <laughs> so I was, uh, I ended up being the president of the College of Charleston HR Club and a student member of the of SHRM, the Society of Human Resource Managers. Um, and with that, connected to a fraternity brother of mine who was one of the top VPs in G GM, um, I'm not GM, GE, uh, and he was their VP over HR. So, learning under him uh, and having opportunities at GE and, you know, like experiencing that and seeing how, you know, the organization of large businesses are structured in order to make people effective and efficient at in their departments and providing training, identifying uh, gaps of services, uh, gaps in systems and processes, like analyzing the organizational chart, all of that stuff, I was doing my sophomore and junior year of college and loving it. Um, so you take that experience along with my military experience, because in the military, I was just going up the ranks. Um, you know, when I got promoted to staff sergeant. At the time, I was the youngest staff sergeant in the state. Um, and going through my, you know, um, my advanced training, my non-commissioned officer training, it all teaches you how to lead people, develop people, organize uh, people, and operate in systems. So when I got into politics and started running uh, working on campaigns, I could quickly identify how to set up a campaign and its structure to be effective and efficient. So I started winning. <laughs> I started winning races. I started oh, like, awesome. yeah, like that experience put me in a space where I, I was winning tough, tough races that should not have been won. Like getting the first African-American uh, elected to serve a majority white district in Charl the city of Charleston. 
that wasn't supposed to happen at that time. And that Can I interject was- and just say, I think it's very interesting that it's 2023 and we still celebrate the first African-American in yeah. certain situations. Like, oh, yeah. I could have sworn it's 2023. And the fact that we still don't have equity and equality is just amazing to me. Like, just yeah. throwing that out there. No, we, we still have so much further to go because, you know, once we can stop saying the first black, then hopefully we can quickly stop saying the first woman, the first Latinx, the first LGBTQ, you know, there should, we should live in a world where there's so much equity and equality that anyone, anywhere, at any time could be anything. And we're not there yet. Right. But I believe we're going, we're getting there. And this new generation, yeah. these these Gen Zers are hell on wheels. And yes, they are yeah. not going to put up with the same stuff that we've put up with, our parents have put up with, our grandparents put up with. So I know help is help is already here they just have to get old enough <laughs> to... fun fact if you're 17 south carolina you can pre-register to vote as long as you're turning 18 by november 2024 so if you're 17 right now you can jump on and register to vote so get on it on it for real and shoot at 18 you can run for you can run for office and in some places, um, you can run for office at 14. Yeah. You know? So it's, it's, it's never too early. Um, but, you know, when we talk about me in politics, you know, I went from running local races and winning um, to being sent around the country to run races, you know, in between semesters. So, you know, I went to Houston for a race there, went up to Detroit. Went over to Charlotte, um, did a little bit over, helped in um, Atlanta. Uh, eventually, uh, once I started getting even better and getting more training, I got into the Frontline Leaders Academy, which was one of those um, organizations under People for the United Way uh, Foundation. Um, you know, there would be hundreds of people to apply, and they would only select 20 to go through the fellowship. Well, the year I applied, like they were so perplexed with me. They were like, wait, so you are former military. You are black in the South. Your grandfather was a pastor, but you're a progressive. (laughs) (laughs) How does that work? (laughs) Right. That That was more, right? So they were like, well, we'll go ahead and add you to the And class. you're a Christian. So like throw and, uh, that in yeah, there. All of it. All of it, right? So um, you know, I they instead of 20, they did 21 that year. And I was the only one in that class that did not come from one of the Ivy League institutions in our country. And I felt so inadequate. Oh my God. And I was like, I was like, am I supposed to be here? Like this one's from Yale, that one's from Harvard, that one's from Columbia, this one's from Brown. Like, 
oh my goodness, these people, and they have all these years of experience doing amazing things. And by the end of it, I was like, hell yeah, I'm supposed to be here. <laughs> like these experiences that I have, you know, many of them can't relate to, but that's what makes us stronger, right? Um, but in that interview, I explained, yes, my grandfather was the pastor of a church of God in Christ. Um, but four of my uncles were gay and, mm-hmm. and are gay. And um, we accepted them immediately with love, understanding, and open arms. Like there was no, you know, any ostracizing them, any looking down on them, any casting them out from our family, any disowning. It was drawing them nearer, drawing them in, telling them that we love them. And I saw that at a young age. So I never grew up with any type of homophobia because I didn't see it. And when I did see it later in life, I didn't understand why people would treat someone that way, you know? Um, And even, you know, in the military, and I was in um, ROTC uh, when I was in high school, like I was in, I lived in the country, I was always around guns, uh, specifically, you know, rifles and shotguns and stuff like that, uh, because my grandfather was a hunter. Um, so I was always taught gun safety and felt comfortable, especially from the military, um, but was always taught about responsible gun ownership. So even when, you know, you have these Republicans trying to have us living in the wild, wild west, that was so foreign to me. Why would you want someone to have a gun and not be trained to use it? and not be responsible for keeping it away from the wrong hands, which could be a a person that seeks to use it in a a harmful manner, or an innocent child that wants to imitate something they saw on television or out of curiosity, play with it and injure themselves or someone else. Just, Just didn't make sense to me. So, you know, going into this it was it was really cool um and that gave me even more opportunities because when you do fellowships like that you meet people you never would have met before and they bring you into opportunities you never would have uh experienced before so you know skip a few years and now i've worked with um, moveon.org as a state director for them um and you know, a movement builder in their organization. Um, I've worked with Tom Steyer on a number of projects to include Need to Impeach after Donald Trump was elected. Um, I've worked um, even from all over the place with Tom. Eventually, I became his national uh, organizing director. And, you know, know, I was overseeing over a dozen states because we had, you know, a bit of very vast primary strategy and nearly 800 staff members. So being able to develop and manage an organization and that system and structure for that um, was important. And I believe that's how we finished so strongly in South Carolina. Um, you know, it wasn't his money. It was the infrastructure that we were able to build. Uh, that got him 
from, you know, 2% in the polls to a strong third place finish um, here in South Carolina. And, um, you know, I've worked with the DSCC, the Democratic Senate um, Campaign Committee. Um, I worked with them on projects. I never worked for them, but worked with them. I worked with the DCCC. Um, this last go around, I had the honor of working with um, Nancy Pelosi's team and the House Majority Pack. Um, and it's just been a remarkable ride. You know, I built an organization called Amplify Action that's registered over 200,000 young Black voters. Um, you know, we've mobilized over a million to go out and vote. Um, we're currently working with a couple colleges now to do research on our strategies and tactics and uh, figuring out, you know, the science and the blueprint around why it's working the way it's working and how we can even deepen uh, the impact uh, through our relational organizing strategies. Um, so shout out to um, American University and Duke University uh, on that. Um, it's just been, it's been really remarkable, Jenny. Uh, all that so experience. How do you like deal with all this? Cause you have military, like, I know, and I know like being, you know, frontline comes with certain, you know, mental health aspects. Cause we talk about mental health on this podcast and like all these organizations, all the stress, you're a husband, you're a father, like, and I'm pretty sure in knowing you, you don't ever sleep. Um, I'm not sure if sleep, uh, like I'm, I'm convinced you have a clone or two. <laughs> So I'm not so like, how do you deal with all this? Man, um, so my family, uh, it's not just myself, like we participate in therapy on a weekly basis. Um, yes, because, gold star, go therapy. <laughs> because it is absolutely necessary. Uh, today, the children are going um, today on Thursdays. Um, but like that is so important, um, but I'm, all, I'm also just so blessed with a partner in Monica um, that is literally a grounding rod and and many times a place of refuge for me to be able to rejuvenate and even talk through some of the things that I'm feeling or I'm going through or situate situations that create high stress for me. Um, you know, my wife has been one of the biggest blessings in my life um, because many Aww. times when we get into these cycles of getting things done, the top priority is the getting it done. And the second priority is sleep, eating, taking time to breathe, taking a break to go walk, get your endorphins up, <laughs> you know, like those things go further and further down the list of priorities as like that big moment or that big day comes closer and closer. And right. she's constantly my reminder of, hey, do you eat? Uh, babe, it's two in the morning. Like you need to go to sleep. <laughs> like right. what are you doing? That can wait till tomorrow. Being chair of a state party is going to come with its stressors. So that's good that you yeah. have like a solid frame. You have a solid groundwork. Cause I always say that like, 
you know, a house not built on a good foundation is going to fall apart. So like you have that foundational, it's going to bring you into that SCDP leadership. So like, what does a chair of a state party do? Like, why, why is it an important position? You know, and, and it's like any organization, the leader of that organization sets the tone. It, it also impacts the culture of that organization. But most importantly, it sets the vision uh, for that organization. It, it sets the, you know, the trajectory, where we're going, the why, and then it works with the team to determine the how. And here in South Carolina, with us being in this precarious situation of Republicans seeking utter and total domination, and then now us being named the first in the nation Democratic presidential primary state, we need a leader who can set the vision for us on how we're going to get competitive and start winning races again, how we're going to re restore and reform the culture of our Democratic Party to be welcoming, inviting, and a place where anyone who um, aligns with our democratic principles can find a place for themselves and thrive in it um, and help with the work. Um, but also, we're going to need someone with the organizational uh, skill set and understanding of how to manage and take advantage of this unique opportunity to be the first in the nation primary. So, you know. I believe that I'm the most qualified person for this time. You know, uh, my granddad used to say, I may not be the biggest guy uh, or the baddest guy, but I'll do to until he gets there, uh, gets here. Um, and I'll say, you know, I might not be the, the absolute perfect person, but I believe I am the perfect person for this time and where we are right now to get us where we're going to go. Right. So I know that the chair becomes a DN <clears throat> DNC member. Like what is yeah. the DNC and what does a DNC member do? Yeah. So if you think about the, um, the board of advisors and board of directors for an organization, like especially I, I'm a life member in the NAACP and, you know, the board of directors is a very powerful uh, entity within the, the NAACP. Think about that when you think about the DNC. They are the ones that determine how, how this party functions, you know, both in protocol rules and um, schedule. And then they also determine how we function in elections. So, you know, what is it going to look like, uh, the process of identifying the candidate that is going to be our president, next president, or how we're going to, you know, support our uh, acronym organizations like the DSCC, the DLCC, the DCCC, uh, the DGA, DAG, all of those. Uh, things to get Democrats elected across the country and at the state level. The DNC is that body that does that. So navigating 
the DNC, it's also a very important job of the chair and his leadership team um, because we we get, uh, I would sit on the DNC as a chair and my first vice chair would also sit on the DNC. And then we also have members who are elected to the DNC from our state. Um, we also have uh, some appointed members of the DNC that were appointed by Chairman Jamie Harrison. So, you know, as we go and represent the state, we're there to advocate for South Carolina to have everything that we need to be successful. And in this time, while we're first in the nation, everyone didn't agree with us being first in the nation. So there are going to be folks like gunning for us. <laughs> They're going to be gunning for right. this position. You know, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, we, we get a few dirty looks <laughs> the first day right. we go, go to a DNC meeting. Um, but it's on us to be able to hold the line, to build those relationships and to navigate uh, this body so that we can keep it. But it's even more important for us as a state to, to really show people what we got uh, in this 2024 presidential primary cycle and show them that it was a decision well made to put South Carolina first because outside of Joe Biden, this is so much bigger than Joe Biden, us being the first in the nation. This is literally about our Democratic Party telling its base that you are important. Your voice should be heard at the beginning of this process and not at the middle or the end, right? So uh, our placement puts us, it, it puts us in a place where our party, the Democratic Party, the National Democratic Party is putting its, its money where its mouth is and saying that we value our base. But us, I don't think there are any other states that really give what we can give. You know, we have a population that's more representative of the nation. We have media markets that allow candidates to get their message out to a broad base of voters and without breaking, the po their, <laughs> breaking their pocket to where only people who are uh, millionaires and billionaires or connected to, to them can do it. And um, we have a really good bullshit radar in South Carolina. So if you, <laughs> if you show up uh, here and you're not on point, um, you're going to know about it and we're going to let right. you know about it. So we're, we're a state that's really good at thinning out the herd. So I think only the strongest will make it out of South Carolina, but we will give them a more realistic experience campaigning here of what it's like campaigning across the country. And we give folks more opportunity to uh, throw their hat in the ring and, um, you know, tell people why they should be the next president of the United States. Right. So you talked a lot about like your background and like why you're running, but like, what do you plan on doing? Like you talked a little bit about what you plan on doing, but like, what would three takeaway points of what your plan is and like, how do you plan to accomplish it as chair? Yeah. Uh, and it's, and here's the thing, Jenny, and you are my campaign manager. So you know this better than anyone else. 
you know, on yeah. day one, <laughs> on day one, like we launched our campaign. And when we launched our campaign, we launched our campaign website. And when we launched our campaign website, we launched our platform, which we thought out over time and developed and were, was very thoughtful in how we developed it. And we developed it in, by asking three questions. How do we fight in every county, compete in every race, and earn every vote? Uh, and we came up with this nine-point platform that has now become the platform for the race <laughs> because <laughs> all the other candidates <laughs> are taking up our platform as well. So I guess we got it right. Um, and, you know, we're all talking about what we want to do. You know, what I want to do is create a long-term strategic plan that encompasses all 46 counties. And it tells us what our South Carolina Democratic Party is going to look like in the next 10 to 20 years right? Because we don't have a plan right now. And if there's a plan that's sitting on somebody's shelf collecting dust, you might as well say there is no plan because <laughs> it's not being implemented at all. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is um, building a grassroots political infrastructure um, that engages our communities 365 days a year, whether we're in election cycle or not. And as we talked about earlier, you know, democracy happens year round. So we have to be engaging people year round and not just showing up when we want them to vote for us, but showing up right. when they need us the most. Right. And then the third thing that we must do is sustain our party financially. You know, that is something that's extremely important. And I believe that we do that by rebuilding our winning coalition with unions with labor um so we're all talking unions about a scary word even for south carolina democrats i don't know why they fear it so much <laughs> so they fear it because republicans have trained us to fear the word labor the word union you know and they've been able to do that because for the last you know, 30 to 40 years, there has been no democratic response. There's been no democratic response. And when the uh, Republicans took over our state government after the whole lost trust situation that happened, because uh, people don't realize, you know, in my mom's lifetime, Democrats, there was a time where Democrats controlled the state entirely. South Carolina right. was a democratic state. It was a blue state. <laughs> so, you know, we had democratic governors and Congress people and senators, um, but all of that changed. And since it changed, you know, um, there was a guy named Irv Condon, um, a relative of Colleen Condon, who's now running for leadership. And he was the proprietor of the new age union busting strategy for South Carolina, all the way to the point where he imprisoned five union workers, you know, unjustly for a very long time. That situation was called the Charleston Five. And um, since then, it's literally took the air out of the cells 
of Democrats fighting for unions in this state on a large and broader scale. The only reason we have the lowest union density is because they were successful at turning the word union into a dirty word. And I think right. us working with unions, working with labor as a party, as a coalition can turn that around and start uh, uh, communicating effectively with people on how unions are the saving grace for not just our state, but the people in it. So, you know, on this campaign trail, we're all talking about the what we want to do. And all the what is right now, it so all sounds exactly alike. We're all talking now. We're all talking about a long-term strategic plan. We're all talking about sustaining financially. We're all talking about a grassroots infrastructure. But I'm the only one talking about how, not the what, but right. the how we're going to do it. Because yeah, here's the thing. Go ahead, Jeannie. I was going to say, like, yeah, we have 46 counties, but like my county, Ridgeville is not Somerville, is not North nope. Charleston, is not Ladson. Right. So like you can have a county plan, but like I think it goes deeper than just it your does. county. It does. And, you know, yeah. When I worked with OFA, Organizing for America, uh, that was President Obama's organization, you know, they had us not just organizing at the county level or even the precinct level, and in some cases, not even the neighborhood level. They had us literally organizing block by block and realizing that the issues of this side of the street can be different from the issues on that side of the street. Mm. And in order to connect with people and motivate them to take action, you have to speak to the issues that are important to them. And we can't come in with this blanket statement thinking that we know what's best for them better than they know it for themselves. So when we talk about creating a long-term strategic plan, we have to be very intentional with working with our county parties to get down to the block level. What are the issues that are impacting people on this block in your county? And how do we build a plan working backwards from success on how to address that? And what are the tactics needed to get it done? So, yeah, one thing I talked about last on the last episodes with uh, Sam and Kyle, like, you know, count, every county has multiple precincts. And like, I live in Coastal 2, but Coastal 1 and Coastal 3, they're different, like yeah. different income brackets, different everything in those brackets. And those precincts, polling locations, we need poll watchers. We need poll watchers on primary day. We need poll watchers on election day. And like every October, we're like, we need poll watchers. Ah, sign up to be a poll watcher. Sign up to be a poll worker. Ah, like, yeah. and it's like, we're not planning for that. And we still have the same poll workers that are still, you know, Kyle talked about on, on the last episode for y'all listeners that his mom was asked for her driver's license, her voter ID card, and then a third form of picture ID just to vote what? one year. See, See and that's, that's the BS. 
right? And in, in, in our strategic plan, we have to figure out how to, how to get more people um, working elections. Because I've seen crap like that happen too. And it's only because Republicans are pushing people to become poll workers and poll managers and poll supervisors. And then we're there as poll watchers. And honestly, that is, there's only but so much a poll watcher can do, especially mm-hmm. if you have a poll manager that isolates you to this little chair in that corner of the room where you can barely see the operation in full, right? Right. So, so we have to be a lot more strategic. And the strategy of this goes down to the operational and tactical level as well and not just the 30-foot strategy of it all. Um, I had a conversation with a guy who was like, well, nobody's talking about the tactics and the timelines. I'm like, well, you know, some of us just assume that everyone thinks that in the, you know, in a strategic plan, you have tactics and timelines and goals and benchmarks. Um, But no, we have to be more explicit about saying that because everyone doesn't know, (laughs) right? Right. And even when we talk about, you know, how do we make our party more sustainable? Well, you know, I talked about that um, rebuilding the coalition between us and the unions, but what does that look like? And how does that work? You know, right now in our state party, um, we don't have a steady um, full-time staff, uh, full-time staff for our party at least adequate staff for our party. You know, if we're going to have a a full staff, that means a communications department, a fundraising and finance department, an organizing department, a political department. And these are departments with people who are focused on that specific lane and being effective in that lane to get us the most we can get out of it, right? Uh, We don't have that. We may have one person doing a couple of those jobs and not being effective at all of them as they could be if they had more help. Um, But what we do, the cycle we go in, closer to the election, we staff up. And then after the election, we fire everybody and go back down to the bare bones. Then the next election, we staff up. And then afterwards, we fire everybody and go back down to the bare bones. And you can't sustain an organization like that. You can't sustain progress. So, you know, it costs us about $600,000 a year to, you know, pay all our bills and to have a full, a full staff. Um, and in, in thinking about that, you know, I've been working with these unions, um, you know, really hardcore for the last two years, but I've been working with labor in South Carolina since 2011. Um, with Kenny Riley down there in Charleston with the International Longshoremen Association. And I know from my work around the country what they invest in other states. Like Georgia and North Carolina, they make major investments in their parties and in the uh, political structure there. We can get the same thing here. So what I'm doing is having the conversations with them say, I need a long-term partnership and commitment from you a financial commitment of a million dollars over 10 years, which means $100,000 a year so that, you know, we can start to cover the cost of our basic operational needs. And if I could get six of y'all to do that, 
I can hire, start hiring the staff I need to get us sustainable, right? That is a huge leap forward (laughs) for our state. I'm also asking them if they would supply us with the communications director that is, um, you know, trained and skilled in communicating uh, around the topic of organized labor and unions so that they can help lead our communications campaign to educate and inform people about the benefits of organized labor in the state. They can be housed in our headquarters and the unions can pay for that person, (laughs) right? Right, Um, right. and, And that is the benefit, a mutual benefit not just a one-way street if y'all give us your your money and we're going to do what we want with it but it's a partnership and then from there we can start to bring in the team and the staff to do call time to do digital uh fundraising to do you know to develop our small dollar donors uh to cultivate that group so we can be like bernie sanders was you know i got a million uh, small dollar donors who give an average of $37, <laughs> you know, like right. South Carolina to be able to say something similar to that, right? Uh, but then, you know, something that is practical is having small events around the state year round. Like, I just hosted the second annual South Carolina Sunday dinner. I thought about that, creating that uh, event to become a venue for South Carolina, similar to the steak fry in Iowa. And if you know anything about the steak fry in Iowa, there's no person that wants to run for president of the United States who would dare miss the steak fry. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and the steak fry raises a ton of money for the Iowa Democratic Party. When I say a ton of money, it, Google it, any of y'all. Googling and see how many thousands of people go there and how much money is is spent and raised uh, on that event. And I believe that our South Carolina Sunday dinner could be uh, something similar to that. But all of these events don't have to be at that level. These can be small um, events that bring in a couple thousand dollars that will help support our state party and our county parties. You know, I was driving through uh, Little River and heard an advertisement for their barbecue and shag off festival. <laughs> like I love barbecue that. and shag. I would love to have a democratic barbecue and shag um, event, you know, over in Ainer, South Carolina or in Dillon, South Carolina or in my hometown of Aiken. Uh, Cause you can raise the money. I know there's tons of people. I love to shag. I learned how to shag when I was in sixth grade, you know? So, For y'all who uh, don't know, shagging is not like Austin Powers. Shagging uh, shagging uh, is a dance in South Carolina. Right. So like, it's a dance. So just throwing that out there. All right. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you for that. You know, <laughs> get your minds out the gutters, guy. <laughs> so, but this is something that's fun. It can uh, create energy in an area that hasn't had any activity in a while it can let other democrats know that you're not alone there's actually democrats here uh it can bring money in but most importantly it can bring in new people 
who have not been participating with the Democratic Party. And now we can bring them in, put our arms around it and say, come join us, come work with us, come help us. You know, like this is not just an opportunity for raising money, but it's an opportunity to do party building at the same time. So, you know, I think it, it just makes sense. And those are like the three steps, uh, big steps I want to take within getting us to be financially secure. And in doing all that, we accomplish the other things as well. You know, when I talk right. about the grassroots engagement uh, infrastructure, this is part of that. When I talk about the long-term strategic plan, this is part of the plan, <laughs> you know? Like it all works in this. And we have to really start asking these candidates, okay, I know what you're going to do, but how are you going to get it done? And we can't right. say we're going to do what we've been doing because what we've been doing hasn't been working and is not sustainable. What we've been doing is asking one person to fund our party. And that person has been Congressman Clyburn. And that is unsustainable. This man is and in for his- for y'all who don't believe it, go to FEC.gov or South Carolina Ethics Commission and you can see who the donors are to the Democratic Party of South Carolina. You can see where the money comes from and you can see where the money is spent. So yes. how do people vote for you? Yes, so you can vote for me at the South Carolina Democratic Party State Convention on April 29th at the South Carolina Fairgrounds in Columbia. Now, that is where the vote's gonna take place. The only people who can vote are delegates to the state convention. Now, you can become an alternate delegate, meaning you are, you are authorized to vote in the absence of, an, of another delegate. So you become an alternate means Brandon's an alternate, Jenny is a delegate. We go to the convention and find out, oh, Jenny had something that happened. She can't make it. All right, Brandon, stand in for Jenny. Now, how I become an alternate delegate is emailing or reaching out to my county party chair and telling them that I want to be an alternate and go to the state convention. That information for who your county party chair is is on the state party's website at SCDP, that stands for South Carolina Democratic Party, .org. And there's a little hamburger tab up in the top right, or if you go on, on, um, on your computer, I think there's an Our Party tab that you click, click down and it shows you uh, county chairs, I think it says, or county parties is what the tab says. You click on that and found, find your county, and it will tell you who your county chair is, and it gives you their email. I suggest that when you email them, you also email all of the people uh, that's listed, and that's the executive direct or executive committee man, executive committee woman, um, and I would also CC Jay Parmley, <laughs> our state executive committee person, and his and he email. Gave that instructions at a recent yep. meeting to CC him on every email. So that was yep. instructions directly yep. from Jay Parmley. And his email is very simple. It's J, that's J-A-Y at S-C-D-P dot org. Um, that's J at S-C-D-P dot org. Um, and some, if, if navigating the website is too difficult, just email Jay. 
and he can get you connected uh, even better yeah. than than we can. So how do people contact you and your campaign to learn more? Yeah, so to contact us, you can uh, go to our website. That's scforwardtogether.com. Um, you can spell it forward the regular way and it'll still get you to our website. So that's SC, that stands for South Carolina, the word forward, F-O-R, F-O-R-W-A-R-D, together.com. Uh, um, and yep, you can contact us through our contact form there. Any extraness, extra advice, or extra story you want to leave the listeners with? You know, I I found myself to be more extra, Jenny, than I ever thought I was. The older I get, the more extra I become. Uh, if you notice, I. I I've never done a birthday party for myself um, after my 21st birthday. And I decided to do one when I turned 37. <laughs> and it was it was pretty extra. Um, and my wife and I, every time we think, I think I'm more extra than her, she does something that makes me know that she's more extra than me. Um, and now I'm actually talking to you from my closet. And in a <laughs> typical household... <laughs> In a typical household, you know, the um, the woman dominates the closet. But I'm realizing with what's hanging up and what's like built up in the corner over here that needs to be hung up, like of the space in this closet, two thirds of it is mine. Like, oh my <laughs> there's gosh. a whole side. Yeah, yeah, there's a whole side for just t-shirts and jeans. And then there's another side for like all my coats and my slacks and my button ups. And then there's a decent part for my ties and my belts and then all my shoes. <laughs> it's so extra. Oh my gosh. It's, it's a hot mess, Jenny. Um, I didn't, I didn't realize it until she brought it to my attention. And I was like, no, I don't have that much. Wait. You're right. I do. <laughs> this is so. It seems like you're extra with your clothing. <laughs> I am extra on the clothing. I really, really am. But I love that. You know, extra is good sometimes. Extra is good for being a little extra with our campaign. Uh, for y'all that don't know, like in the past, like these campaigns for chair were never a big thing. Not until the convention day, like. You know, there might have been some calls, a robo-dial, maybe a text message or a mailer that would go out before the convention, but most of it was settled on the convention floor. Like, we've been so extra in this campaign. Like, we hand-wrote or hand-signed letters that went to the delegates, hand-filled out <laughs> the envelope <laughs> to send, to give that personal touch to our mailer that went out to the delegates. Um, we've literally been making phone calls uh, to delegates ourselves, uh, introducing ourselves and answering questions. And we've been to, I, I've been, our team is, has been to um, around like 35 or 36 counties, both for county party events and, and meetings. Um, the other day, two days ago, my odometer on my car just went past a 10,000 mark 
for 10,000 miles driven since <laughs> since we announced this campaign in January. So you track them gas right? receipts so you can get that I, gas credit on your taxes. Absolutely. That is going to be crazy. So, you know, and then typically people don't run as a slate. And here we are. We're running with a full slate. Shout out to uh, Mary, Melina, and Erica, who's running on the slate with me. I hope you get a chance to come on your show, uh, Jenny. Yep, I got them but scheduled. We are awesome. We are the extra crowd, y'all. Extra, extra read all about it. I love that. Well, um, I hope everyone enjoyed listening. Um, this is a longer than normal episode, but you know, you can listen to it on your drive and and, and um all that, and uh maybe on your drive to Columbia, your drive all across the state. Um, or, you know, whenever, when you're sitting at work on, on a, a soft quitting Monday, what is it called now? Like, I don't know. Um, but anyways, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed and I hope you took this opportunity to learn a lot. And I hope that uh, Brandon has your support. Again, I'm biased because I'm the campaign manager. Um, but I'm really excited to interview you again after the election once you're elected as chair. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And, you know, all the people are in our 2,257 precincts. We need you to be represented at this thing because it's time to get the party back to the people. And we'll, when we talk again, hopefully we're successful in doing that, Jenny. Absolutely. All righty. Y'all have a wonderful extra day. <laughs> Thank you for joining me on this episode of Being Extra. You can follow us on all social media platforms at Being Extra Podcasts. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and yes, we're still on Twitter. We do some updates on there, but mainly just follow along your favorite podcast provider. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And share this podcast with your friends. And always remember... Life is so much better when you're just being a little extra. Talk to you soon.